I would invite you now to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. This is our last and final week in Revelation chapter 3, and we are looking at the very last of the seven churches that the Lord Jesus addressed through John in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, if you would follow along with me to the end of the chapter, for these are the very words of God. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works, you were neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the the Spirit says to the churches. Well, our last church, the church in Laodicea, is perhaps the most famous and well-known of all the seven churches. And the reason I say that is because two of the The images that Jesus paints here have become extremely popular for people. The first one is the lukewarm imagery. Jesus condemns this church. This is one of only two churches that we've looked at that has nothing positive. Jesus has nothing positive to say. He condemns them. This is not a healthy church. This is not a good place to be. And the primary way he does that is through this analogy of describing them as not being hot, not being cold, but being lukewarm. And the lukewarm language has become very popular in modern evangelicalism. And we will, you will often hear people today describe other churches as being lukewarm. And it's also popular for that, that imagery that Jesus gives of standing at the door and knocking. And this has become a very famous passage for evangelical churches to use for things like altar calls or for preaching the gospel and sort of presenting Jesus as knocking at each and every person and asking them to come in to him. And so this church is very, very well known for these famous images and stories that Jesus paints here in this uh, text. Now, I will tell you right from the get-go that I, I don't think that the common understanding of the condemnation here is really actually what uh, Jesus is trying to communicate in the text as we look at the lukewarm imagery, we, we ask that question, what, what exactly is being communicated here? What are they being condemned for? What does it mean to be lukewarm? And I would argue that there's really three possible interpretations to that, although I see truth in all of them, and I think they all have points of agreement, so they're not radically separated. 
But there are sort of three primary ways of looking at this. And, and, and I'll share my opinion with you, though I, I'll be honest, I'm not entirely sure exactly what, what Jesus is getting at, but I think that's okay for understanding the text as a whole. The primary way the lukewarm analogy is interpreted in evangelicalism today is the, the, the picture, uh, allegedly, that Jesus is painting is that a lukewarm church is a church that sort of lacks uh, spiritual fervency, This is a church that maybe says they're Christians and they go through the motions, but they don't really have a zeal or a passion for Jesus. And so as the analogy stands, you've got hot Christians, hot water Christians, and that's where you want to be, right? Those are the passionate, zealous, on fire. Sometimes we say that today. We call Christians who are really excited on fire, really, really excited Christians with a lot of passion and zeal. And then you've got cold waters, which is people who just reject Christianity altogether. These are atheists and Muslims and Mormons and whatever other religion. These are people who reject Christianity. They hate Jesus and they openly defy Christianity. And then lukewarm is in the middle. Uh, people who claim to be Christians, but they, they really probably aren't. And so as that stands, Jesus then would uh, allegedly be telling the church in Laodicea that he would rather them be apostates. He would rather them just reject Christianity altogether than claim to be a Christian but not really have the zeal. Now, there is some, uh, like I said, I think there's some truth to this overall understanding. I mean, this church certainly does lack a genuine zeal for the Lord, that's obvious just by his con- condemnations of them. I don't, I don't think people who just genuinely love the Lord with, pa- with passion and excitement could be as pit- pitiable as this church is. But more specifically, notice that Jesus does tell them when he calls them to repent. In verse 19, he says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. So certainly this church does lack zeal. They, they do lack that. But on the whole, I really reject this modern interpretation. I don't think that lukewarm Christianity is equivalent of what we would call today nominal Christianity or Christians who just sort of go through the motions. And the reason I reject this is because I don't believe that the cold water in this analogy can rightfully be said to be apostate, reject Christ. I just don't believe that what Jesus is actually telling these people is I would rather you reject me wholesale than live without zeal and passion for me. I just don't believe that. And one of the main reasons is because of the language that Jesus borrows from the Old Testament. He tells them in verse 16, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Jesus is rejecting them for being lukewarm. Now, notice this, though. That, 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 that language comes, by the way, from Leviticus. It comes from the law where Jesus tells the people of God as they go into the land that if you commit the same abominations that the, that the Gentiles were committing before I brought you here in this land, the land will vomit you out. So Jesus is saying, if you're lukewarm... I am going to curse you and I'm going to vomit you or spit you out of my mouth. But here's the problem. If, they were, if cold Christianity, if cold water Christianity is atheism, it's hatred for Christ, rejection of the truth altogether, if, if it's apostasy, Christ would spit them out of his mouth too. 
So the reason I reject this idea that cold equals like atheist apostates is because to me, the text is actually indicating to be cold is to be good. Cold water Christianity is good. That's a good kind of thing. Jesus finds that refreshing. He won't spit that out of his mouth. He's not going to vomit that. So I, I reject the notion that lukewarm Christianity is sort of nominal Christianity and Jesus would rather you just be an atheist than be nominal. I, that might be true, but I don't think that's what the text is communicating here. A third reason is because it, it, it ignores a glaring issue on the text, which is that there's, there's, there's certainly a problem here of this church's self-awareness, right? It, they say in verse 17, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are. So this church thinks they're something, but they're not. They, they don't see, they, they can't take their own temperature, in other words. That's why one of the reasons why Jesus calls them blind in verse 17. And that's another reason why at the end of 18, he metaphorically says they need to purchase salve from Jesus to anoint their eyes so that they can see. This, uh, this, other, this common understanding of lukewarm Christianity, it just doesn't take into account this issue of self-awareness. If anything, what the lukewarm analogy is getting at is that if you were to put your finger in hot water, you could know it's hot right away. If you were to put your finger in cold water, you would know it's cold right away. You would be able to have self-awareness. You'd be able to identify the temperature, but you put your finger in lukewarm and you're like, what is it? I don't, I don't know. It's kind of hot. It's kind of cold. These are people who, they can't take their own temperature. They're not able to identify what they are. So I, I just don't think that the common understanding is true, though I think it has truth in it. I, I generally take a position that I think what Jesus is really getting at here is that this is essentially an unholy church. This is a church without good works. This is a church that's not living holy lives, that's not living for Christ in the world appropriately. And in other words, what I think is I think that the hot and cold water analogies are similar to in the Gospels when Jesus uses analogies like salt and light. Jesus tells the church to be the salt of the earth. For how can the salt, how can you, once you lose your unsaltiness, once you lose your saltiness, you're unsalty, what, what good are you other than just to be thrown out and trampled? Jesus tells them to be the light of the world. And what good is a light if you hide it under a basket? And so what I think Jesus is getting at here is cold water and hot water are both productive. Cold water and hot water are both helpful and beneficial. Hot water has, a, a, has healing and comfort and cold water is refreshing and drinkable and Jesus wants the Christian people to be hot and cold water in the world, to be useful and productive and beneficial, but this church was complacent and they didn't understand their spiritual condition and so they were neither of those things. They were like lukewarm water. They were no works. They were, had no purpose serving no benefit. And Jesus says, I can use hot water. I can use cold water. I have no purpose for lukewarm water. Spit it out of my mouth. One of the reasons I think this is because what's evident in the text is Jesus, when he calls them to repentance, he tells them that, he says in verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire. 
And he talks about how they need to be rich and they need gold, but not the kind of earthly, physical riches that they already possess, but spiritual gold, spiritual riches. And all throughout the New Testament, we find that that metaphor is used for good works. 1 Corinthians talks about how our works will be tested by fire and the gold and the silver will be purified and the hay and the straw and the stubble will be burned up. Jesus is calling this church to self-identify and be holy. So I, I don't think he's saying I would rather you be an atheist than a nominal Christian. I think he's saying I want you to be holy Christians, but you are self-dependent on your works. You think that or on your riches. You think that because you're rich, you've you've got it going on, and you're not you're not working. You're not being productive in the kingdom of God. So I think that this this church is famous, but maybe not for all the right reasons. However, nonetheless, given his, his, his condemnation of their lukewarmness, what I really want us to see, though, is this text is much more than just the lukewarm analogy and the knocking on the door of the church. What is, we, what is going on here? What is it that we really can take away from Laodicea? And, and, and there are two primary points that I think we take away from the text as a whole. Not just focusing on lukewarm Christianity or on knocking at the door. But what does the text as a whole offer to us? And here are the two points that I want to give you today. The two things we're going to look at with the remainder of our time. We are going to look at the danger of wealth and the faithfulness of Christ. That's what I really think is the overall takeaway from this text. Is that wealth and comforts in this world are very dangerous. Not wrong, but dangerous. But we also learn about just how faithful Jesus is. The danger of comfort, the danger of wealth, and the faithfulness of Christ. So let's look at the danger of wealth. Jesus condemns this church for being lukewarm. And then he tells them in verse 17, he tells us a little bit more specifically what he's so upset about. And here's what he says in verse 17. For you say, I am rich... I have prospered and I need nothing. So what is happening here? What's happening is that the Laodiceans are financially blessed. They are rich. They have prospered. They need nothing. This is a wealthy church. These people are rich and it makes sense because what we know historically about Laodicea is it was an extremely wealthy city. Some of the most important industries of the Roman Empire were found here, were thriving here. As a matter of fact, one historian from the very early, earlier centuries tells us something interesting. There was a huge, there were a, a series of earthquakes in the region and it decimated many of the towns, many of the cities we've already looked at. Philadelphia, Sardis, and Laodicea were just decimated by these earthquakes. Like, their culture suffered far more from these earthquakes than even we are from COVID-19. It was, it, was, it was horrible. These towns were destroyed. But one historian tells us something interesting about Laodicea. It tells us that Laodicea was able to rebuild itself without the help of Rome. It, it, it required no government subsidies, no government help was needed. They had enough wealth and enough industry to p 
pick themselves up by their own bootstraps, so to speak. This was a, a city of great wealth. And we also know, we have no evidence of a lot of persecution of Christians in this place either. So the Christians in Laodicea were healthy, they were wealthy, and they were comfortable. Not a lot of persecution, not a lot of suffering, not a lot of need. But as they themselves said, they were rich. They have prospered, they have no needs. And so notice now then, in light of that, that that sort of becomes the, the primary issue of this church. They are too dependent on their circumstances. The Bible tells us you cannot worship God and money. You cannot worship God and manna. And this is a people who are essentially turning to worship money. They think they're self-dependent. Their hope is actually in their riches. You see, their comfort has dulled them into a stupor. They have blinded themselves. They are so comfortable and they are so prosperous that they've put all their trust in that. They've put all their dependency in that, not in God. They are in a stupor. As a matter of fact, it's, it's interesting as Jesus rebukes them, Jesus tells them, you say I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, and then he describes them as being poor, blind, and naked. And I believe that has significance. I believe Jesus is ironically, Jesus is ironically using that term to rebuke them. And the reason it's ironic is because those three, those three things are the exact opposite of the industries that made the Laodicean people wealthy. The three primary industries that made Laodicea so wealthy is they had a banking industry. They had a lot of financial advisors and banks and a lot of money in that place. And so Laodicea was rich, but Jesus says, spiritually, you're poor. They also had a large medical university there. They had a, essentially the world's best hospital, if you will. And one of the things that they primarily excelled in was I work. They, they, they helped people see. They helped work on people's eyes. And so another thing that made people rich there was all the work they were doing and healing people and helping people who had vision problems. And so this city, these people who were so good at helping people see, Jesus says, are actually blind. Another industry that made them very wealthy was a wool industry. They, made, they produced tons of wool products, specifically black wool. And so while this, this, this city and these Christian people are getting rich by clothing people, Jesus says, spiritually, you're naked. You see the way Jesus is so cleverly pulling away all of the things that in verse 17 they found their dependency in. Now, this message is important for two primary reasons. Number one, it's a real shot at the prosperity gospel, right? We've talked about that in church quite a few times. It's a real shot at the primary prosperity gospel. Because what it's getting at is these people are interpreting their riches and their blessing as a sign from God that everything is okay. 
Their self-dependency, why are they so dependent? Why are they so self-satisfied with their riches and their comforts? They are interpreting these things as, as blessings from God. In other words, we must be doing something right. All of our other brothers and sisters in Asia Minor are, are, are being persecuted, are being killed, are being attacked, are being shut down. And here the Laodiceans are just reaping in the blessings. We must be doing something right. But what do we learn from this text? Your financial riches are not a sure sign that God is blessing you. Your financial riches, your, your, your comfort as a people is not necessarily proof that God is pleased with you. That's what they thought. We're all good. I mean, look at the blessings they've been pouring in. And the whole prosperity movement is based upon this principle, that God just desires you to be wealthy and healthy and comfortable, and if you would just be more faithful or if you would just give more, or you would, then he would shower blessings upon you. But the Bible is clear from cover to cover that God pours blessings on the faithful and the unfaithful, on the righteous and the wicked. The rain rains on both. And so here we have a people living according to the prosperity gospel. We're good. <laughs> we're being blessed. Keep at it. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. You are not good. You might be wealthy, but spiritually you are poor. This is a real shot at the prosperity gospel. But more to the point, I believe that this is helpful for us because it reminds us of just how dangerous wealth is. Just how dangerous it is to be comfortable and wealthy. Now, hear me out. It is not sinful to be comfortable and wealthy. Not at all. The Proverbs are filled with proverbial wisdom for how people, how Christians can gain, obtain, and, and be wealthy. In, in, many of Paul, in a few of Paul's epistles, he addresses the wealthy members of the church and he never says things like, how dare you be wealthy? How dare you own a lot of money? Give it away, right? Being wealthy is not a sin. Being wealthy is not, uh, in and of itself, a bad thing. As a matter of fact, from a, from a global scale, everybody who's watching this right now is extremely wealthy, so we're all in big trouble. No, this is not a condemnation of wealth, but what you cannot get away from in reading the scriptures from front to back is that while it is not sinful to be wealthy, it is not sinful to be comfortable, with that situation does come spiritual danger. As Jesus says, it is very difficult for the rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. There is something about riches. There is something about comfort that strikes directly at our dependency and love for God. Job learned this the hard way. This was exactly what Satan accused Job of. Satan told God, of course Job loves you. Of course he's righteous. You've blessed him. Take that stuff away and we'll see who he really is. There is something about riches. There is something about being healthy and wealthy and comfortable that attacks our need to be dependent on God so that we never say what the Laodiceans say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. 
we are always in a place of need. We are always in a place of total dependency on the goodness and sovereignty of God. And being wealthy can cloud our understanding of that if we are not careful. Uh, One other observation I'll make before we move on to our next point. Is it not interesting that as we have been going through the seven churches in Revelation... That the churches that have received the most commendation from Christ, the churches that have had Christ more often commend them and, and, and compliment them are the churches that seem to be under the hardest of circumstances. And the churches that we've looked at that have been living with, generally speaking, more ease and more comforts and less persecution are the ones that Jesus has so many negative things to say Now, uh, there's a correlation there. I, I don't know for sure what the causation is, but I can't help but think there is a secret blessing in persecution. There's a secret blessing in suffering. There's a secret blessing in trial. There's a secret blessing in need. And so that should encourage all of us Christians who are, have become, I think, very, very fearful of the state of our country, the direction of our country, It's certainly not moving in a good direction. I'm not a prophet. I'm not the son of a prophet, but I know which way the wind is blowing. The comforts for the Christian church in this country seem to be dwindling. Our trajectory seems to not be a place of enjoying more freedoms and blessings, but less. And while I certainly don't hope for that, while I certainly don't pray for that, there might be a secret blessing in that. Maybe we are more like Laodicea in this country than we think. Thinking we need nothing. Maybe a little bit of trial, a little bit of testing, a little bit of difficulties will be good for us to remind us of where our true dependency needs to be. But the first point that we see in this text is the danger, the temptation of comforts, the danger of wealth. However, in the midst of all of that, we see a second point which shadows over that first point. That while in this text, Laodicea is certainly being condemned for how it has inappropriately responded to its comforts and wealth and blessings... Jesus remains faithful in the midst of it. So yes, we see the dangers of wealth to the people of God, but more importantly than that, we see the faithfulness of Christ to the people of God. Christ shows us and reminds us just how faithful he is even when we give in to the temptations and the dangers of wealth and money and comfort. Where do we see that? Well, what immediately follows the rebuke? After Jesus tells them their true condition in verse 17, after he counsels them to repent and to buy gold and white garments, to clothe themselves in holiness, to, 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 to put salve on their eyes so that they can see that they might have zeal, that they might repent, he tells them this in verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove in discipline, so be zealous and repent. So, 
rather than forsake these people who have fallen into this stupor, fallen into this blindness, they have become so dependent on their wealth, they have become so satisfied in their own power, in their own riches, rather than just forsake them, Jesus says, like a loving father, I love you. And so like a loving father, this letter is intended to rebuke you. And rebuke is a form of discipline, and discipline is a form of love. You see the faithfulness of Christ like a good father coming in to discipline his child? Like a good shepherd coming in with the rod to correct and guide the sheep. He does not merely just write these people off. He does not forsake them. He doesn't just pour fire and brimstone on them and slaughter them. He loves them. You see, discipline never feels like love, but it is. It is the parent who does not rebuke their children. It is the parent who does not discipline their children who is the parent who actually does not love their children. Discipline is a form of love. Discipline is a form of faithfulness. By rebuking and disciplining these people, Jesus very explicitly in 19 says, I do this because I love you. So Jesus' love shines through their unfaithfulness. He disciplines them like a father. I, I understand you probably get the point, but uh, let's turn still. Let's just let the, the Bible say it better than me. Turn to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12. The author of Hebrews makes this uh, abundantly clear. Hebrews chapter 12. I have a new Bible and the pages are still sticking together. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 5. The author of Hebrews says this, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which you all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we have respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of the spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You see how high a view the scriptures have of loving discipline, of fatherly parental discipline? 
And so Jesus' harsh words, and this is true, by the way, not just in Laodicea, but in all the letters we've seen, in almost every single letter, not all of them, but in almost all of the churches, Jesus has something harsh to say. He has a harsh word, a word of rebuke. But that is a sign of his love for these people. And he makes that abundantly clear in verse 19 with the Laodiceans. Even though you have fallen far from me, even though you have been blinded, I still love you. And my harsh words are a sign of my love for you. They are a sign that you are my children, that I have not forsaken you, that I have not abandoned you. Jesus' love, his faithfulness shines through even in the midst of their spiritual stupor. But we also see this in verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. So what is Jesus doing? Again, in the midst of their stupidity, in the midst of their stupor, they have essentially pushed Jesus out and they are now worshiping money rather than Jesus. They are now worshiping manna rather than Jesus. They are dependent on their circumstances, on their blessings, on their riches. And Jesus says, though you have pushed me out, I still desire fellowship with you. He didn't just shake the dust off his feet and walk away and abandon the church. He says, I'm outside knocking. I still love you. I still want fellowship with you. I still want you to receive me to repent of your ways, to repent of your wicked ways, and to enjoy the intimate fellowship that we once enjoyed. You see, this is not a salvation text. This is a reformation text. He is calling these people to reform. He is calling the church, the churches in Laodicea, to return and enjoy the fellowship the intimacy with Christ that they lost when they began to delight too much in their wealth. But again, the key here is they have pushed Jesus out, but Jesus has not pushed them out. Jesus has been faithful to them. Jesus continues to love them. He continues to accept them. He continues to rebuke them. He continues to discipline them. And he continues to long for intimate fellowship with them. He has not abandoned this church, though they deserve to be abandoned. He has not forsaken this church, though they deserve to be forsaken. Isn't isn't this such an incredible comfort for us today? If we're being honest with ourselves, both as individuals and as churches, as, as, as our church, Redeemer, we have done things like Laodicea. We sin. We behave in ways we shouldn't behave. We put our trust in things we shouldn't put our trust in. But isn't it comforting to know that like a good father, Jesus doesn't just kick us out of the house. Like a good father, even in our rebellion, even in our stupidity, Jesus stands at the door and knocks. You see, Laodicea is filled with language of, you are lukewarm, I'll spit you out of my mouth, you've shut me out, you say this, but you're actually this. You know, the text is just, just covered in their unfaithfulness, but we cannot lose 
the bright light shining in that darkness, which is the faithfulness of Jesus. He is so good to this church that does not deserve his goodness. And that's great news for us because if we are realistic, if we, for example, put on the, the salve that he told the Laodiceans to buy so they might see, if we put on that, if we purchase that from Christ, we put that on our own eyes, we might see. Maybe I'm more like Laodicea than I'd like to think. And so this is a call for all of us to repent, to come to Christ and to purchase from Him white garments and gold refined by fire. It's our reminder, by the way, as we go and we purchase gold from Christ and we purchase salve from Christ, we purchase clothing from Christ, it is our reminder that going back to this issue of self-dependency, that even our goodness, even our good works, our faithfulness, ultimately come from Christ. We need Christ for these good works. He is the origin of our good works. He is the origin of our faithfulness. There is no repentance without first turning to Christ. Our good works are not self-generated. We metaphorically purchase them from Christ. We turn to Christ and He becomes all we need for holiness, for faithfulness. So the Laodiceans were putting all of their hope and trust in their riches. And Christ says, I love you. I rebuke you as children. Now turn, repent, put all your hope and trust in me. And then he concludes in a similar fashion that we've seen him conclude in all of these letters. And so if you don't mind, as a, a way of sort of closing the series out and tying in with our Advent I want us to draw some more general principles from this conclusion about all seven churches. He, he tells them in verse 21, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So notice Jesus concludes in a like fashion that he's concluded almost all of these letters, which is this issue that we've talked about every single week, union with Christ. That because of our faith in Jesus, our union with Christ, we inherit all that he has inherited. Jesus says that by, by believing in him, you are then seated on his throne. Paul tells us this, by the way, in his epistles where he says things like that you who have believed have been seated in the heavenly places. Christ sat down at God's right hand and so now we too, by our union with Christ, are seated at the right hand of God. Because Christ is victorious, because Christ has conquered, those who have faith in him, those who persevere with him are victorious conquerors. And this ultimately then becomes, if not the entire theme for the entire book of Revelation. I believe it is such a sad thing that the primary way of understanding Revelation is a glimpse into all the bad things that are going to happen to us someday. That's what it all is. Look at all these terrible things that are going to happen and uh, the signs of that. It's all, it's, it's essentially becomes all about how the church is in trouble. But every single message to these churches ends the exact opposite way. 
The book of Revelation is about victory, not defeat. It's about conquering, not being conquered. The book of Revelation is our reminder that no matter our circumstances, Christ has overcome the world. And he is seated at God's right hand. And he is, he is not lackadaisical there. He is ruling. And that is what we read at Advent. Christ was not just going to come to forgive sins, although that is a huge portion of what he did. But what did Isaiah 9 say? What did the prophet say? He came to rule on David's throne and to establish justice and righteousness. You see, what all of these letters do is they begin by reminding us who Jesus is and then they end with how he conquered and how we conquered with him. The glory of Christ is revealed in all of these letters. And that's why Christmas time is such an amazing time. Because we are remembering who Jesus is and exactly what he accomplished. It gives us true light in the darkness. It truly gives us hope. For example, how did our text begin? Verse 14, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the amen. We use that phrase, amen. What does it mean? It means, so be it. This is the only time in all of the Bible where it's used as a title. Jesus is the amen. He is the so be it. What's being communicated there? What's that mean? What it means is that the will of God is guaranteed accomplished through Jesus. God's will, so be your will, your will, not my will, your king, is accomplished in Jesus. Or as 2 Corinthians says in, in chapter 1 verse 20, that all of God's promises find their yes in Christ Jesus. He is the guarantee of all of God's promises. He is the amen. That's who was born in Bethlehem. The amen was born in Bethlehem. And that's why we should have great hope moving forward, great encouragement moving forward, because God's will is being accomplished through Christ. It's guaranteed. He also is what? The faithful and true witness. Unlike the Laodiceans, who are unfaithful, he is perfectly faithful, and he has faithfully and truthfully witnessed to the gospel of God, to the purpose and revelation of God. So the amen, the one who fulfills all of God's promises, has come and been a true witness to these things, and then it ends by telling us that he is the beginning of God's creation. Now, do not misinterpret that as, as being the first created thing. The word there is the arche, the arche of God's creation. What does that mean? It means he's the origin of creation. So wrapped up in that word is a variety of concepts that he is the one who created all things. He made all things. He is the originator of creation. But more than that, he is the one who sustains it. Creation finds its glue in Christ. He is the creator. He is the sustainer, but probably most importantly, the Arche is the one whom this whole thing is about. All of creation is ultimately about Christ, or as Paul says in Romans eleven thirty six, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. 
Paul tells us also in Colossians chapter 1 that he is the preeminent one above all things for all things were made through him and for him. That he is the firstborn of God's creation. He has inherited all things. He has created all things. He is the whole purpose of our history. It is all centered in and gathers around Christ Jesus. That's who was born in Bethlehem. The one who all of history is about, the one who controls all of history was born, and that is the one who has addressed all seven churches, and that is the one who has promised victory to all of those who have trusted him and are faithful to him. And so I leave us, I end us, not just with a message from Laodicea, but a message with all seven churches. Christ is reigning victorious. He is the amen to all of God's truths, to all the promises of God. And those who persevere in faith and trust in Christ are victorious now and consummated in the resurrection. So we have no need to fear. We have no need to fret. Even when things go bad, what did we learn today? It is a good God who disciplines us and who uses this as discipline to make us holy. The Lord Jesus is in control. He is a conquering king. He is a victorious king. And it is through our union with him that we shall be and currently are a victorious church. 